Unmask the Heart is the theme of the BCC's year-end giving campaign. The trials of 2020 have revealed many things going on in our hearts, both the worries and fears we have as well as who or what we worship. Our prayer is that these trials will draw us closer to God and closer to one another, and that is at the heart of what we strive to do at the BCC. Will you help us reach our year-end goals by becoming a monthly giver or sending a special year-end donation? You can also help support us by sharing our resources and social media posts using the hashtag, hashtag UnmaskTheHeart. You're listening to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. 1514 draws its name from Romans 1514, where the Apostle Paul encourages the church that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm your host and the executive director of the Biblical Counseling Coalition, Curtis Solomon, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of 1514. It's a pleasure to have you with us. We really appreciate you as an audience being a part of the ministry of the Biblical Counseling Coalition and are thankful for your feedback, your remarks, and your recommendation to others. So please jump online, tell others about 1514, as well as the other ministry outlets of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. Today I have with me, of course, virtually, uh, somebody who's familiar to many of you, uh, Dr. Paul Tripp. So Dr. Tripp, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to have this opportunity with you. Well, uh, for those who maybe don't know you, could you t- tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I've been a pastor and a seminary professor, uh, worked for 20 years with the Christian Counseling Educational Foundation, began writing then, and um, I think everything I write would be in the field of counseling because my mission in writing is to to connect the transforming power of Jesus Christ to everyday life. Mm. Uh, I'm now working on my 26th book. I didn't ever think I would write that many, but they just keep coming out of me. I can't take any credit because it's God's truth and God's gifts. Apart from those two things, I would absolutely have nothing to offer. Uh, So uh, my time now is spent, um, I think, three ways. One, writing. Uh, Two, I face-to-face mentor about 14 young pastors, and then I travel internationally working with international uh, church planting organizations seeking uh, to just help them to assure the spiritual health of pastors um, out there. We also do uh, regular live streams. Um, I just finished uh, five-minute gospel summaries of every book in the Bible that are on uh, video. Um, so it's, it's, again, just bringing the, the truths of the gospel to everyday life in a variety of ways. Yeah, well, I know many of us are, are blessed by your writing and your audio and film or video ministry, so thank you for, for doing that and continuing to do that. Uh, we're recording this on November 19th, and just this past weekend, we, uh, our dear brother and uh, father in the biblical counseling movement, Dr. Jay Adams, uh, went home to be with the Lord. Would you mind sharing just a, uh, maybe a brief memory of him or a way in which his life and ministry influenced you? I mean, it's, it's almost impossible for me to overstate the impact that, that Jay has had on me. Um, 
when I first read, beginning my seminary career, uh, when I was first, well, I was actually thinking of going to seminary, first was exposed to uh, Confidence and Counsel, the very first edition of that that came out. It was so thunderously transformative. It was like a second conversion experience. I mean, it really was that powerful to me. And I knew that this is what the church should be doing. And I knew that's what I wanted to give my life to. Mm. I wanted to take the truths of the wisdom, the truths, the principles, the promises, the hope of the gospel and bring them to people who were dealing with the troubles of everyday life. Uh, so hugely, hugely influential. I've been around Jay uh, many, many times. My, my very first conversation with Jay, I was a new guy at CCF. So John Bettler, who was the director said, Jay was coming in town and he said, I want you to have dinner with Jay. Oh, it was intimidating uh, for me. Uh, and so we we sat down to eat, and the very first thing I said was, speaking as an average pastor, I got those words out. And Jay leaned forward in his booming voice and said, don't ever say that again. I didn't know what I had said. He said, if you were the average pastor, you wouldn't be at CCF and you wouldn't be on the faculty of Westminster Seminary. If you continue to underestimate yourself, you will not be a contributor to the body of Christ. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I sat there silently and ate my food and listened to Jay talk the rest of the evening. <laughs> but what? he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. I needed what he was saying to me is you need to have confidence in the gifts that God has given you. Hmm. Not faith and self-confidence, but the confidence in the gifts that God has given you. And uh, that I, I think that forthrightness of Jay has been roundly misunderstood. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and he was not a bombastic, uh, mean man. Uh, Jay was tender-hearted and loving, caring, pastoral, but he knew what he believed, and you would soon know that uh, what he believed, and you would soon know that what he believed was true. <laughs> what a what a what an intimidating form of encouragement there <laughs> for you. <laughs> uh, but I'm I am I am forever grateful. There's there's not a day in my writing or my speaking or my mentoring where I don't reach back into the influence that that man has had on me. Mm. Amen. Amen. Yeah. As, uh, all of us who, uh, have been counseled in the last 50 years or do any form of biblical soul care counseling, um, we all are indebted greatly to that man's faithfulness to, to the Lord. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Um, today, while there's lots of different things I thought about talking to you about, I really wanted to talk about your one of your recent books, Lead, 12 Gospel Principles for Leadership in the Church. Um, what, what led you to write this? You just mentioned you have 26 books that you just can't stop, uh, they can't stop coming out of you. What led you to write this one in particular? Well, when I wrote uh, Dangerous Calling, uh, which is addressing the unique temptations of 
ministry, specifically pastoral ministry, uh, I knew my life would change. Hmm. I knew that I would probably be the guy that people would call, churches would call, leadership communities would call when a leader was in trouble. And that happened. It happened around the world. And um, as, I, as I listened to those stories and walked through churches with those moments of trouble, it became very apparent to me that uh, most regular behind a fallen pastor, a struggling pastor, a burnout pastor, a pastor just wants to run away from ministry, is a dysfunctional leadership community. And so I knew I needed to write a second, a second book that would address uh, the leadership community. And, and if I could do this, uh, if I could in almost a sentence summarize uh, what lead is about, it's this. Uh, ministry fruitfulness requires longevity. Fruit doesn't happen overnight. The key to longevity is spiritual health. It's only spiritually healthy pastors that can sustain the dark valleys and the high mountains of pastoral ministry. And the key to spiritual health is community. For all of us, our walk with God is a community project. And so that's what the, that's sort of what the, this book then expands. Uh, if we're going to be fruitful, we need to be spiritually healthy. And if we're going to be spiritually healthy, we need to have that community uh, around us. Yeah. No, that's really, that's really evident uh, in the book. And I think it's great. I, when I got the early copy, um, I took a picture and sent it to my pastor immediately and said, you guys, the elder team at our church needs to go through this book as soon as it comes out because the, uh, I mean, you share some stories in there where you're on the phone with a pastor, uh, an elder after a church uh, pastor is melted down, left disqualified from ministry, whatever the case was. And you really started pushing into to them, to the leadership team and seeing what, where did you guys go wrong? Where did you miss it? And it was just such a foreign concept that they they had a part in this at all. Uh, and so it's such a, a such a great needed resource. Um, in the introduction, you you write, um, I write, convinced that we, the community of believers, can be the most honest community on earth because there is nothing that could be known, revealed, or exposed about us that hasn't been covered by Christ's atoning work. I thought that was really helpful and, and was wondering if just your thoughts, like if we as Christians really genuinely believed that and, and lived it out, um, what are some of the ways that you think our church, our, our experience as the body of Christ would be different? Uh, if, if I could uh, confess my subterfuge in this book, <laughs> uh, it is... The book stands as a challenge to pastors. Do you are you willing to live out the gospel that you preach on Sunday mm. in the community that is with you in leadership? Uh, and that community is not possible without the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Who's ever going to talk about failure? 
Yeah. Who's ever going to admit weakness? Who's ever going to confess sin if all I all I have to keep me going is your approval? Hmm. If I need the approval of the people sitting around me, and I need for them to think I'm great in order for our leadership community to work, nobody is going to be honest about anything. Yeah. But if I sit in that room and I love those men and I want good relationship with them, but I don't need them to approve of me mm. because Jesus measured up fully because he knew that I would not measure up. And he took all the father's rejection so that in my worst moment, I would never see the back of God's head. If I got that confidence, then why would I be f- afraid if you're surprised at a moment of confession that I would know? No, and I think it has, I mean, obviously it would have implications too. I mean, the, what the what the leadership does, what the leadership believes, and what the leadership practices is going to impact the sheep. And if, I mean, I know personally when I hear a pastor being vulnerable, being willing to share his weakness, um, it encourages me and, and those in the, whoever listening to be the same. Uh, and, and really when we do, I think what you just said there, if we were, why is it that we're surprised by confessions of sin? It's like, we, <laughs> we all know we're all sinners. So what, why does that, um, does that hit us that way? Um, there's another, there's another thing here. It's, it's the other side of this. Why doesn't it shock us? that a group of men can be with a man physically for years, be in close conversation with him for years, do things that are fun and things that are very, very serious for years, and yet have no idea this man has lost his way and be shocked when he makes that confession to them. Why doesn't that surprise us? Why aren't we saying something's wrong? How can you know a man that you don't actually know at all? What does that say about the character and quality of the community that you have with that man? And and Curtis, here's why that's important. The Bible would tell us that every leader is a person in the middle of his own sanctification. Mm -hmm. That means every leader still has sin inside of him. That means every leader has areas of susceptibility to temptation. Yep. Every leader is living in a fallen world that's so messed up, the Bible says it's groaning itself, mm. waiting for redemption. So we know everything in the Bible tells us that leaders are vulnerable. And, and we have Old Testament and New Testament case studies of the vulnerability of leaders. Mm-hmm. So it just, it, it's almost mystifying that a book like Lead would need to be written. Yeah, no, you're, yeah, it's absolutely right. Because there, are, there are principles, there are case studies, and there are warnings in Scripture about the vulnerability of every leader. And yet we still have leadership communities where people in that community can live long-term in those communities unknown. Yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's a really practical question that should come out of lead uh, or, I mean, honestly, like you just said, just out of scripture, if we genuinely believe that all of us are in the process of sanctification and we all are dealing with sin still, 
if you as a leader in your church, as an elder, deacon, whatever other form of leadership role you're in, if you don't know the personal sins that your pastor your, and they don't, and the, the whole community around you aren't aware of sins in each other's lives that you're actively praying for and stuff, then something's wrong. So you need to know what's going on. It's a function of the community. We're not like Jesus. Remember when they, when they let the guy down through the roof, mm-hmm. Jesus knew what the, what the Pharisees were thinking. Yeah. We don't have that ability. Don't yeah. try. Uh, but so that means if we don't have uh, this community welcome to candor, where candor is met with restorative, uh, comforting grace, um, there's, there's, there's no way to, to have those conversations. And that means that you and I cannot minister to what we don't know. Yeah. So we may have a heart to encourage. We have a heart to, to lovingly confront. Uh, but if we don't know those things, there's no opportunity for us to do those things that we actually may have a heart for. Yeah. So when you, um, man, I want to go in so many different directions. Uh, I'll stick to my next, <laughs> next question, though, maybe. Uh, you, you really frame the the book around 12 principles it's in the subtitle how did you arrive at those 12 what was significant about those 12 things i don't think they're those 12 principles are mysterious i would think of those are just um basic relational applications of the gospel to any community setting i could take those 12 principles and put them in another setting. I could make those 12 principles for a marriage or 12 principles for, for parenting. Now the shape would be a little bit different, mm-hmm. but they're, they're the kinds of things that the gospel moves us toward uh, in, in our relationships. They, they emerge like in the second half of Ephesians when, when Paul says, okay, here's the gospel I've laid out. Here's what it looks like to live in light of those gospel. They're, they're there in uh, the teachings of Christ. And so they emerge pretty, pretty easily uh, because they, they are really on the surface, particularly of the New Testament's application of the gospel. So kind of back to your question before of just why, why would a book like this need to be written on the, when you have been invited into these churches and you've had the opportunity to talk to the elders that are left in the aftermath of a, a fallen leader, a removed leader, whatever. Um, how do you go about beginning to instill in them these, the, or encouraging them to be, to, to take on these principles so that they can have a healthy community moving forward? Well, it's, Here's just an old counseling principle. A counselor is not a counselor until a counselor is a seeker. Hmm. So you, you have to begin to uh, help these leaders have a sense of need. And the way you do that is by helping them to diagnose accurately the dynamics that went on that led to this point. And I, I think there are typically... Uh, Two of those, if I could talk about these. Mm-hmm. One is 
that achievement becomes uh, too much of a central core value uh, that and that begins to uh, define our view of a qualified leader. A qualified leader is an achiever. It uh, begins to shape the way we relate uh, to one another. An achievement-driven community, no one confesses failure. Yeah. Uh, in an achievement-driven community, people are afraid of being exposed. Mm. In an achievement-driven community, a character takes second place to productivity. Achievement community esteems uh, skill more than godliness. Uh, isn't it interesting in the qualification of elder, you go through the whole list, there's only one skill qualification. Everything else is character. Mm-hmm. That gives you God's value rating of what's important for a leader. So uh, achievement begins to distort the way we think about leadership and what a leader is and what a leader should be. Uh, now, the problem with that is we all should be passionate about the work of the kingdom of God. Uh, but a desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is that uh, every every. I would imagine every leadership community wants to be uh, a godly, wholesome, encouraging gospel community in the beginning. But as as a particular leader begins to have some fruit, um, it changes his relationship to the people around him. So the people that were holding him accountable now become his defenders. Mm. Maybe somebody comes and says, but he seems to be pretty angry. Well, the response is, well, look what he's produced. Look what God's doing through him. Danger, danger, danger. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, those defenders, they get converted and they become advocates. They're now promoting what is a dysfunctional community. And it's it's all based, rooted in the wrong value system. I think maybe sometimes that even begins in the way that we call a leader, the kind of leader that we look for, uh, because we, we want to do it. And the qualifications in Scripture say, get a beer. Look for a beer. Look for a person who is Christ-like in character. Uh, that's the leader uh, that you want. And and I want to mention a third thing here. Uh, I argue in the book that success is more dangerous than failure mm-hmm. because success begins to distort my view of myself as a leader. And here's what it does. It, I begin to take credit for what I could have never done or produced on my own. Mm-hmm. I, I take credit for the move of God's spirit. I take credit for insights that I have. I take credit for my gifts. And I become proud of my 
accomplishments. Uh, it, you know, it's it's a pastoral uh, rendition of Nebuchadnezzar standing on his balcony and saying, "Look what I have produced uh, for my glory." Um, and and so now you have a, a man who was once humble, once a servant, now proud. Proud people are defensive. Proud people are entitled. Uh, they deserve things that other people don't deserve. Proud people use people rather than serve people. And so now the culture is, is in trouble. The problem is, the reason this blows up is the church won't do your bidding. The Lord of the church won't allow that to happen. And so this heads toward a, co- a, a collision of, of some kind, and we all know those, those sad stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you put in, in the book, perhaps there's no better defense against spiritual attack than humility. That is, a sense of constant need for protective, empowering grace that motivates us to watch for danger and cry out for God's help and the loving help of fellow leaders um, humility is just all through the book. And, and I obviously looking at Philippians chapter two, I, I know why, um, we need to lead like Christ, but why, um, yeah. How, how do you take, have you seen or been able to help a leader who has, who's begun before the catastrophe, who's beginning to manifest pride and, and step in, or either seen other churches do this to step in and and correct that because um, I know I've I've been around a few churches where some some on the elder board begin to detect that see that and and be concerned and try to speak in but as as you mentioned there's already those advocates those defenders who are his his fans who've come along seen the fruit. Um, any success stories on that of, of reversing the pride before the massive fall? Sure. It's, it is one of the things that I do with the pastors that uh, I mentor all the time. I am, I am looking for that concept. These are, these are doer guys, but they planted churches. They're many of them are a type personalities and I'm, always challenging them, always saying, why did you take credit for that? Uh, Hmm. Why did you answer a person that way? Uh, Why do you think you're entitled to that? Uh, Why do you think uh, Jesus suffered, but you you shouldn't have to? Uh, I'm just challenging all of those seeds of beginning to think of myself as something different, something special, uh, something better, but 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 I, I want to answer uh, your question personally. Um, I am I am internationally known. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't literally walk in a city anywhere without somebody on the street recognizing me. I am terrified of that going to my head and changing my view of myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wake up every morning and I pray these three prayers. God and a man in desperate need of help. That's the first prayer. It's a confession. 
Second prayer is I pray that you would send your helpers my way today. That could be a person. It could be a passage of scripture. It could be a hymn. It could be something I read. Please send your help to me today. And then here's the third prayer. Please give me the humility to receive the help when it comes. I have prayed those three prayers daily for 20 years. Mm. Uh, and so I want to uh, encourage two things in that leadership community. I always share those prayers with them and say, why not pray this? How about praying this before every meeting that you have? That's the first thing. So I want to encourage a specific way of being committed to humility. And then I want to encourage them to look for seeds of pride in their community. Not a negative, uh, debilitating witch hunt, mm-hmm. but a loving concern that that will be our undoing. Because King Christ will not surrender his throne. God resists the God. Gives grace to the humble. We should be afraid. Pride, we know from the garden, is a source sin of a whole story catalog of mm. other sins. Yep. And so I, 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 I want to put that on the table uh, right away um, in, in both encouraging humility and, and teaching leadership communities how to be watchful for the seeds of pride in their community. <clears throat> no, that's, that's a really good word because I think sometimes we can be duped into thinking the only thing that's going to take a pastor out is sexual immorality or embezzling money. And those, I think, are two of those um, fruits that come from pride still. But man, pride has so the variety of fruit of, of, of sins that come out of that root of pride are so, uh, so many more than just those two. Um, so, yeah, well, that's really good. Well, we, we learned from the garden. And one of the things that pride does is it allows me to convince myself that I can step over God's boundaries without consequences. Mm. And so long before there's uh, a situation of adultery, that man has essentially lost his functional fear of God. Mm. And so he's not afraid anymore to write his own rules and to live the place of this life. I mean, I counsel a man who had a sexual relationship on Saturday night with a woman outside of his church and Sunday morning preached a sermon on purity. Hmm. Now that man is looking God in the face and saying, I'm not afraid of you. Hmm. And I don't mean just in a condemnation place and just an awe of God that, that uh, his holiness uh, constrains me. He's lost it. Well, there's no end to what that man is able to do because of that. Well, that's that ability to do that, to lead that shockingly duplicitous life started 
months, months, maybe years ago with the seeds of pride growing and taking fruit in his heart. Yeah. Well, well, we could, I, I know I could keep talking about this forever, but we have time limits in this world, unfortunately, uh, and, and on podcasts. So, um, we're the last two minutes of our, of our episodes. I usually save for a, a segment called two minute favorites, and it's just a fun way for people to get to know you in a, in a little different way. Are you ready for, for this segment? I am. All right. First question is what is your favorite food? I would say that I am probably a lover of French food. All right. Favorite color? Blue. Favorite sport? Football. Uh, favorite sports team? Mm. I'm from Philly. Eagles. Uh, favorite? Uh, although, I, if you're from Philly, the, the mascot of the century now is Gritty. I don't know if you've seen Gritty. I have, no, I have not. Oh, man. Just, just Google Gritty. All There's right. a whole Gritty world out there. Uh, favorite gift you've ever received? Well, it was just uh, this past birthday. I had a birthday last Thursday, and I had in the 80s uh, purchased a handmade Alvarez Yari nine-string guitar. My son is a musician, had inherited that, but he... Um, had it refurbished and presented it back to me. Mm. It's a beautiful, beautiful instrument. And then, uh, unknown to many people, I traveled with a Christian band years ago and wrote and recorded music. And my wife found a whole bunch of cassette tapes and had those digitized, and they played my music back to me at my my birthday. Uh, one Christmas musical that I wrote. So it was it was lots of fun. Those are really precious gifts and precious memories. Mm. Favorite gift you've ever given? Um, I think for one particular birthday, I took my wife to an island location, beautiful, and we just had such a wonderful break. Years and years of active ministry. I wanted to honor her with that, and we will always look back at that time as being just a remarkable time for us. Well, that wraps up our two-minute favorites and uh, as well as our time on this episode. So, Paul David Tripp, thank you so much for being with us on 1514 today. It has been my honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of 1514. If you'd like to know more about the Ministry of the Biblical Counseling Coalition, you can visit our website at biblicalcounselingcoalition.org. You can also contact us at podcast at biblicalcc.org. Special thanks to Carrie Felton, our podcast producer, who arranges and coordinates these interviews, and James Wills, our podcast engineer, who does the sound editing and makes these episodes sound so great. I thank you for being with us again and hope you can join us next time on 1514.